Today's episode of the Dave Chang Show is brought to you by World Central Kitchen. Their relief team is working across America to safely distribute individually packaged fresh meals in communities that need support. They're now serving tens of thousands of meals daily in some of our biggest cities like New York and Los Angeles. And they're launching initiatives across America to deliver fresh, hot meals to hospitals and clinics fighting on the front lines while keeping local restaurants and businesses as well. You can directly help the heroes in hospitals and clinics who are fighting for us. And you can keep your local restaurants alive. So important. Go to theringer.com slash WCK to donate. We're trying to raise $250,000. And if you have the means, it's an unbelievably great and useful cause that helps our hospital heroes, emergency workers, and local restaurants. Please give whatever you can. All of the money goes directly to World Central Kitchen and it's a charitable donation. Once again, that's theringer.com slash WCK. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Known Media. Thank you to Yola Tango, as always, for letting us use their music in the intro. This is our fourth installment of the Too Small to Fail series. We have chef, author, director, multi-hyphenate Eddie Huang. You may know him as the chef founder of Bauhaus in New York. He wrote his memoir, Fresh Off the Boat, which was turned into an incredibly successful TV series on ABC called Fresh Off the Boat with an all-star ensemble, Asian-American cast. And he is finishing his touches on his directorial debut on a coming-of-age basketball story called Boogie, and I'll let Eddie speak about that a little bit in the podcast. But besides being incredibly articulate, he's a, went to law school, he's incredibly outspoken, and oftentimes I've been in the crosshairs of his uh, comments, and I'm okay with that because we need more people like Eddie speaking their mind. Eddie is one of the sharpest guys out there. And I wanted to know why he decided to temporarily move to Taipei during the the beginnings of COVID-19. And uh, if you follow on Instagram, you saw how he got on a plane and, and left. And I wanted to know why. And more importantly, for where we're at in America, I wanted his take on how different Asian culture, particularly East Asia, Singapore, Taipei, Korea, China, how they've really done a remarkable job of flattening the curve of this coronavirus and what are the steps and what is the sort of the cultural understandings, particularly in Taipei, of people holding everyone accountable. And on a very practical level, I wanted Eddie to give us insight as to how restaurants and businesses in Taipei are now reopening. Because when we spoke to him, he just said that nightclubs had just uh, been reopened by the city. So I think that a lot of the answers here in America and anywhere else that are going through this right now, you one day will have to reopen, hopefully sooner rather than later, with the proper safety protocol and PPE and all of these things that are constant conversation uh, if you work in restaurants or if you just follow the news. I think we're going to have to follow so much of what is happening in Asia, Taipei, is a remarkable city. I've been there three times. I can't wait to go back. And uh, I also wanted to get Eddie to give us insights as to the beauty 
deliciousness of the cuisine of Taiwan, a true melting pot of different cultures. And uh, Eddie's a great spokesperson. So um, one note on the audio, I know we've had some difficulties, but it's not really difficulties, is that we were recording this on Sunday in the morning, and it was 9 a.m. for me. It was 6 a.m. for Chris Yang, who has been a remarkable host, producer. His wife gave birth a couple months ago, so he's got a three-year-old and a newborn. You probably know this if you've been listening to the Dad's podcast, and he was comatose. Uh, and Eddie, he was in uh, Taipei. It was uh, Sunday night around like 9.30 or 10 p.m. in Taipei. So we had a lot of things going on with the audio in three different time zones. So apologies, but I think it came out great. Wanted to just, again, thank you for all the support. And uh, we're going to keep on doing this. A lot more to add. So I'll, I'll just uh, shut up now and let you hear our conversation with the great Eddie Wong and um, the Too Small to Fail series. So what was, what was going through your head? It was like, hey, man, I got to get out of America and head to Taiwan. Because I, th- I would say most Americans would probably say that's the last place I would want to go. So the thing is, like, I followed it all the way from the beginning because my parents were living with me in L.A., and then we we kept having arguments because they just kept bringing their old shit from their house in Orlando into my house. Like <laughs> I'd go out to the store, I'd come back, and there was like an elliptical machine next to my bed. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, like, what is this? And my dad's like, I don't want to throw it away. And now you could do cardio and like watch basketball. I'm like, and sweat on my bed. But like, um, <laughs> so they were like, we kept fighting and they kept fucking up my crib. So I was like, y'all, y'all got to go. So my brother got them an apartment in China and they moved to China on January 10th. And then January 16th, Corona hit and like they were all locked up. So my parents were only in China for five days. And I was like, oh my God, like I got in a fight with my parents and sent them to China, and now they're going to catch Corona? Like, oh, my God. Like, Buddha's going to kill me. Do you know what I, mean? I was like, this is the, like, worst Asian son thing, like, I've ever done in my life. And then they were locked up for two months, and I just kept checking in. And my mom's funny. She just, they said they, like, kept getting, like, uh, whatever, like, the Instacart of China food deliveries. She was, like, cooking food, sending me videos. And um, everybody just, like, really followed the rules. But I followed it from the beginning. And when I saw that ship, which you probably did too, Dave, I saw that ship pull into like Fort something in California. And then American like medical workers and soldiers were fucking with people from that ship without masks and shit. I was like, it's done. We're so, we're so fucked up. And like, I started to go to the hospital to ask questions and I had gotten really sick at Sundance. And, uh, you know, I I was hanging out at Sundance. I got very, very sick. So I went to the hospital. It was around like January 26th, somewhere around that area. I went to Cedars and I did a strep test, not negative. I did an influenza test, negative. But I had all the symptoms. Like I was coughing, uh, really, really weak. And I was like, can I get a Corona test? And they're like, we wish we could, but we don't have a test. Like, the tests that we were sent and things like that were were not sent. I think what the guy was saying, they had zero tests, but even the hospital that had tests 
had tests that were like fucked up and broken, like didn't work. You know, those tests that America tried to make themselves. <laughs> and he was like, that shit don't work. And I was like, so what are you gonna, like, what if I have Corona? He's like, lock yourself up in the crib. Don't do shit, just take Tylenol. He's like, there's nothing I can do for you. And then he was cool though. He gave me codeine. So I was like, respect. <laughs> if I gotta go out, I'm gonna go out with the mango Fanta. But like, <laughs> I just, I just drank codeine for a week and it took me 17 days to recover. Like this was the worst flu I ever had. And uh, I'm not saying I got Corona or antibodies. Like I'm not one of those dudes, but I just started to pay a lot of attention. And I kept going to the hospital and then like walk in medical care being like, hey guys, y'all got tests yet? What are you doing? And, and the doctors and people I kept talking to would just keep telling me, we have no tests. There's nothing we can do. If you get it, you're gonna take Tylenol and like ride it out. And when I started to see it spread, uh, one of my good friends, uh, I won't say his name, he don't want me to say, but he was like, knew a person at the hospital and was like, there are 30 cases of Corona right now in LA, in our neighborhood at this hospital. And, and that was the same day as the NBA and Tom Hanks. And I was just like, have to go, just, just gotta get out, you know? Was anyone on the flight wearing the full sterilized suit and goggles? <laughs> no, no, but my brothers in China, there were people that had that cause they were like flying to China from like, I think they went to like Thailand or Cambodia for work and they had to go back to China. And when they got off, the full hazmat thing was on there. But can you, can you explain how much more serious Asia is taking this than anywhere else? Well, here's the thing. And, and, you know, Dave, I'd love to know your opinion about this is like, you know, in an Asian household, it's like what your parents say goes and there's no carrot. It's stick or stick. You know what I mean? Like yeah. either you listen, you get hit or you get hit again. And, and then if you got to get hit again, then you're also like kneeling on a bag of rice, you know? And, and so Asians, when, when, when you're told by the government or your elders or, or an authority, you just, you just do it. You know what I mean? And like, even I'll use myself as an example because I'm more American than I think I am at times. Right. So I came to Taiwan. I was very, very good. I went to immigration. I said, look, you know, they took my temperature, they got my passport, phone number, everything. And then I was like, can I go outside or do I need a quarantine? And they're like, you really don't need to quarantine. We have your information. There's very few cases here. Your temperature is right on the dot, 36.5. Um, obviously you could be a non-symptomatic carrier, but you know, they're like, do your thing. Don't, don't go to large gatherings. You could go eat, you could go outside, but like, keep it small. I, I kept it small, stayed in my hotel for like five days. And then some friends, my buddy Eugene and my buddy Sonny were like, come get a coffee with us and, and get your hair cut because my hair was all fucked up. So I went and took a photo and Sonny's like a big actor out here, Sonny Wang, he posted it. And there were actually, you know, people that got upset. Uh, they were Taiwanese people in America, which was very funny. It was a guy, we have like a political thing in Taiwan. Some of the native, native Taiwanese will still be mad at Chinese Taiwanese people. Uh, there are very few of them. Like these days, it's all pretty chill. But a lot of the ones that moved to America still just got old beef. And he started tweeting, was like, oh, look at this fucking Chinese Taiwanese not respecting the self-quarantine in Taiwan. And I was like, what? And there were some Taiwanese people that defended me. 
And then they were all posting on my Instagram comments, but it got to be crazy, them fighting. And then it, I'm not really into the like internal Taiwanese political beef, you know, I think it's a big distraction. So I deleted a few comments and then even the people that were defending me started to be like upset. It was just, they wanted attention, but they were like, you should self quarantine. And I was like, I talked to immigration. I've talked to the people in my hotel. I've, I've talked to everyone. I don't have to, but you know what? Out of respect and because everybody's upset, I'm gonna just self quarantine. So I self quarantined and uh, I really, you know, I did my thing, stayed in the hotel, but it was, it was funny because I was even made an example as a dude that was outside. I did have a mask, but they were like, everybody just, whether it's official or not, please self-quarantine. And, and everybody does it. You know, everybody listens. Do you think the idea of following orders is confusion? Like, so, what is the linking thing for all of these countries that are like, yes, I don't want to follow your orders, but I'm going to do it out of fear? Yeah, you know, that's a really good thought, Dave, is, is and, and it's also because Confucius, you, I mean, obviously you're Korean, I'm Chinese, Taiwanese, but Confucius from like Sandong, which is like the last province closest to Korea. So it's like he kind of rules over all of East Asia. And um, I definitely think it's Confucian. And then, you know, I don't want to speak for all Asians, but at least me personally, and a lot of people relate to this is my parents would always tell me. You are you you are descending in a line of five thousand years of human history. Like even before we were Han Chinese people, even before you know people were Japanese or Korean. This is like a five thousand year old lineage of human history, and you're not special. And like it was told to me very early on, you're not that special. I agree. I don't think any of us are that special. I think we've all lived many many lives, but um. My parents were always just like, put the greater good ahead of yourself. And while it's stifled individualism at times, you know, as an artist, you probably relate to it, Dave. It's probably difficult at times to hear what your mom has to say about your cooking or, or, or the way you live your life or yada, yada. And it was very difficult to grow up in America with this totally like different mind and philosophy and values. But as I've gotten older, I've really embraced it, especially in these times, because what you're seeing now with this pandemic is that the Asian countries have done very well and the citizens have really listened and put their countries and their societies ahead of the individual, even if it's just for like a month, like just a month. And I wouldn't even shit on America. Like I, I will say LA, New York, you know, A plus students, right? Like I talked to everyone in LA and you, all my friends, and I'm just seeing photos. It really seems like people in New York and LA, they're bigger urban centers. They're, they're big communities and they're putting the community ahead of themselves. But then you see like fucking Texas, bro. Like seriously, secede. Do you know what I mean? Like, what is this shit? Like the people that want to open back up, I'm like, so all the all the work we've put into quarantine is like for naught if you open this shit up. Well, they've unfortunately it's been politicized, and yeah, I I don't know what's going to happen here because I've been trying to empathize with, let's just say it's a MAGA supporter. You know, you're seeing these photos in Ohio and some places that are more Trump country, and they're yeah. angry. And they're not listening to sort of health authorities. They're listening to Trump's Twitter feed saying, liberate Michigan, liberate Ohio, all these things. 
And I'm just wondering, like, they're scared, they're anxious, and they want to get back to work. And that's a dangerous combination, you know? And yeah, I don't, I don't have the answer. And yeah, I'll I, I try to think about that. I was like, the worst thing we can do is like, hey, get in line, do this, follow orders. But at the same time, it's like, America just has too much individuality, too many freedoms of expression. And the irony is when I try to explain sort of Asia, and again, I'm not Taiwanese, but just from a Korean perspective, is how can you hold individuality and community and family and nation state status simultaneously? And I think that's hard for anyone else that's not from East Asian descent to quite understand. Yeah. And, and you know, I want to hit on something you said about politicizing it, too, is because they are politicizing it, Dave. And the, you know, both sides politicize it. So I ain't going to say it's just the right, like, I'm going to just, let's chalk it up. Both sides politicize it. But this idea that they're making this like a federalist thing, like a federal rights and states rights things, to me is bullshit. Because when Trump wanted the Muslim travel ban, that was a federal thing. You know, that was a federal action across the board. So he had no problem federalizing the politics of banning Muslims. But when it comes to coronavirus, he's like, hey, let the states figure it out. Let the states fight over it. We need state solutions because he's putting business ahead of the individual. And to be honest, man, like America prints money and this money, it's not backed up by shit. Like they got gold in Fort Knox or whatever, but it's it's the strength of the dollar in comparison to currency around the world. And there's two things that give the dollar power, the military and uh, intellectual property, because everybody uses our intellectual property laws. And that's what backs up the dollar, because you argue with America over trade, over their currency, over the debt, over inflation. They just beat you the fuck up. You know, that's so America could print money and give it to people and Texas, Ohio, Florida, like you know, give it to these people that are scared, like give these checks out because that money doesn't mean shit anyway. By the way, do you know They're how manipulated with oil prices? Federal uh, FDR financed the Great New Deal. He fucking cornered the gold market. He bought all, he made everyone sell their gold. He melted it all down to gold. I mean, bars, send it to Fort Knox. And then he jacked up the gold prices. <laughs> yeah, he's <laughs> genius. It's genius. Like I respect, I respect that America. Do you know what I mean? He just stepped on the shit, you know, like he took cocaine and made crack and and you could do it again because you have the military. Everybody buys guns from you. So it's like, nobody's going to come tell you the dollar's weaker. And, and the other thing you remember in school, when we read that Keynesian, Keynesian economics, guns and butter, remember those fucking VHS videos? Yes, I do like, actually. That's all it is, man. It's guns and butter. Um, speaking of Asia and, um, politicizing this whole COVID-19, what are your thoughts on Trump using the Chinese as sort of the vehicle to talk about it, whether it's the Chinese virus, the China virus, and then you have the other side being like, no, fuck you, dude. The Spanish influenza is 1918. MERS came from the Middle East. Like this is how we've always done it. Why is it different? Can you suss that out? This versus MERS or, or, yeah. or yada, yada. Or well, is it different? My, my thing is this, like, I don't even get into that level of the conversation. My level of the conversation is like every government's media 
is dying to shit on the other government's media. Even the new, I love the New York Times. It's pretty much, I just read the New York Times, The Guardian, and then like whatever news people send me in my DMs, <laughs> I read that too. But like, even the New York Times gets very, very excited to print anti-Chinese news with like, you know, like some of the sources, it's, it's you know, it's, it doesn't feel as sourced as some of the American stuff. And like, it'll be like, you know, I've seen articles on the Times even lately where, where it's like, you know, there's doubts about the Chinese body count. And I'm like, all right, there's doubts. What number do you think it is? What are your sources? What's that? And you're not seeing that in some of these articles. And so like, I, I get very leery of blaming any one country for this. And I'm not just saying it because I'm Chinese, Taiwanese, like, um, you know, when, when there was Ebola, it wasn't like, fuck whatever country that was from. Right. And, um, like I, this is, this is tough, man. This is, this is very tough because it feels like humans and individuals were caught up in this like global economic warfare that is constantly going on. And I think it's really shitty for the Asians in America that are getting beat up, that are getting discriminated against. It's, it's very heartbreaking. And um, it's just tough to see. It's, it's tough to see. I mean, Dave, you, you grew up, you know, we, were you born at Fairfax Hospital, by the way? There's a question. I was born I, in I was, uh, Alexandria. Word. I, I'm like 15 minutes from you. you yeah. born, I was born Fairfax Hospital. And, and I always thought that was pretty interesting and cool about our stories. Like we came from literally Nova. 10 minutes from each other. Yeah. Did, did very, very similar things with our lives. Um, and uh, what I was going to say is for you, I mean, you're a little older than me too. It, it ain't easy growing up Asian in America. No, you know. particularly when, when when I grew up, you know, I grew up in like McLean and Vienna, but there was nobody there. I was, it was oftentimes like the only Korean person until I went to church and there would all be these Korean people there. But for the most <laughs> part, you know, like I spent a lot of time in Richmond and playing golf and such. So like I got to grow up always knowing that I was not like everyone else. And yeah. You know, that that is fortunately, I hope, I think not the future that my son or Chris's sons or you know, our generation's kids will have to live in. But that gives me a lot lot of fear right now because a lot, I mean, I always judge it by food, right? You know, personally, like kimchi, you have all kinds of people now eating kimchi or even nori or kim, like the Korean, these mm -hmm. Korean things that I was made fun of. Now people have it all the time. And like, it just proves to me that over time you can find acceptance. But now, because it's never been better to be Asian in America, Right. Because of yeah. even parasite winning and just in general, like you have this ability to talk to you on a platform like this and to have other sort of signaling of Asian American strength is a beautiful thing. We've never had this before. You know, Alan Yang just came out with Tiger Tail, a movie like all of these things are great. But now I, I have a little bit of fear that this growing, beautiful movement might get squashed a little bit. I have a very similar sentiment. You know, I have a very, very similar sentiment. And then also, like, as an Asian American dealing with this, like, look, I would prefer to be at my crib in LA with my friends. Do you know what I mean? Like, I got I got my friends in Taiwan, but like my heart, my heart is with my my fam back in America. You know, those are my people. And like I'm in many ways displaced and, and out here now. You guys are stuck at home. And this isn't easy for anyone, but it 
it's, I think it is doubly hard for Asians because like, you're also scared to go outside your house and you're getting blamed for a lot of this. And for Asian Americans, you're not even in China where this came from. You know, like you are completely disconnected. You just happen to look like people from this country that people are blaming for it. But in many, many ways, um, America had a head start to prevent this ahead of almost any other country. There's really no excuse for America to be this unprepared for it. And for people to like be blaming Asian people and attacking Asian Americans, it's fucked up. You, you should be mad at your own government. You know, like you, you had a two month head start to see this thing. There were people in his cabinet that told him about this. I mean, they, 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 they received people infected with Corona off of a ship at a military base with no protection. I mean, like in a legal world, right? If this were a tort, there is like a potential independent action where you could have stopped this. You know what I mean? Like it would be very interesting to see this as a court case if America were to bring this like against China, hypothetically. It's like, well, you had multiple moments where you could have taken independent action to prevent this, yet you still want to blame this other country, you know? <clears throat> and it's 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 not like, I don't think anybody in China wanted this. I mean, tons of people died in China. Eddie, how... Um... How aware were you of how this was playing out in Taiwan or Asia, like as it was going? And was there any question when Tom Hanks got it that you would go to Taiwan? Nah, because I, I watched the whole time how my parents dealt with it. And Taiwan is such a like interesting case study because we're not recognized on a global stage. It, it's like it's renegade island, you know, status quo, all those things that it's been called. We're not in WHO. We're not in the U.N., it was very interesting because Taiwan doesn't have anything else to look out for besides its own people. There aren't like huge, huge, huge global political considerations. So when this started happening, it was like, yo, just protect ourselves. All right. Send the people on the planes, clean out those planes, track everybody from China, get a hold of those cases. Don't allow it to spread. Um, there was like that one patient in Seoul. Like Korea had done a really good job. And there's that one pay, like patient 30 something. Gave it like 1,500 like, people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fucking that, Korean like, people. <laughs> that patient, hey, yo. <laughs> but like uh, Taiwan was very, very good about it and contained it. And everyone was just all in. There wasn't like, what does America think? What does China think? It's like, what does Taiwan want to do? We want to lock this up right now. And Taiwan was extremely aggressive. And I mean, people are out in the street living their lives. Like the clubs reopened on Friday. Like I'm trying to go hear French Montana's new record. <laughs> um, yeah. Will you give us more of a sense of like the scene in Taipei? What's what's happening? Like people were, when I got here, people were very, very scared. Everybody was wearing a mask. Everybody was being very careful. There was a lot of you know, even people like peer pressure, stay inside, things like that. Um, local Taiwanese that uh, had been here, they were still going outside and going about their business, eating food. But gyms closed, schools closed, big meetings closed, clubs closed. It was really just go to the grocery store, go to the restaurant, go home and be careful. Um, now, because we've had multiple days in a row with no reported cases of corona, things are starting to open back up. Business is, is back to usual. And there was like a huge sense of relief this weekend. Like you could just see it on people's faces, Friday, Saturday, 
going out to dinner, walking on the street. Like there was a huge sense of relief. And I do think that day is coming for Americans. And like, I really cannot wait for you guys to like have that feeling of relief. Like I'll have the same feeling when America is good, but you just have to shut it down. You have to have a, a concerted national, federal and individual effort to like sacrifice for the amount of time you need to sacrifice to contain this thing. Can you talk about opening back up? Because obviously, you know, there's only so many things that we can control right now. And I think the idea of reopening up as far as that away might, that might be, and it might be financially impossible for many business to even reopen up. But like in the event that we can, that's what I'm trying to set my goals on to have our plans and to be organized and to have the safety protocol. What does it look like for these restaurants, these small businesses, the convenience stores to have, you know, post-COVID-19 or in COVID-19, like opening? Like, what's the measures? What are you seeing? In Taiwan? Yeah. I mean, restaurants were empty for a while. Like, I talked to restaurant owners. The business was down. People just ate it. They just took it on the face. You know, um, there hasn't been like this giant stimulus out here. Uh, I don't think the government has that capability. I could be totally wrong, but from the owners I've talked to, they haven't received any really stimulus. They just, they just really lost money for six weeks now, which is tough. But the other thing is this, Taiwan really takes care of its people in terms of inflation and in terms of the cost of doing business. America, because our entire economy is based on the stock market, Wall Street, speculation, and like economies of scale. Bro, you, you probably want the most successful restaurateurs in, in, in America. You don't make money for two weeks, you might be a rat, right? 100%. I mean, people ask me about Bauhaus and I'm like, it might be a rat. We've been open 10 years. God bless. I'm just happy for the 10 years. I'm very thankful if we don't reopen, um, I hope some kid takes the torch and carries on in the tradition and, and the ideas and things that like I brought through that restaurant. But it's a very real thing that you may not be able to open because restaurants don't make that much money anyway, man. Like it's 12% margins. And that's a, that's, it's a whole nother issue right now. Yes. Uh, you know, the PPP, the, 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 the stimulus federal thing that was passed, it really only hit 10% of the restaurants or less than 10%. They get any, I, I feel optimistic. Haven't spoken to people in government that they were, they will pass something and they will address it because if they, they know if they don't, America will collapse. So I, I do believe that's going to happen, but I mean, you don't got a college degree, man. You work in a restaurant. You know what I mean? Like, that's that's just what it is. And uh, it's, I mean. It's depressing. Yeah, you know, look, I didn't do any fundraisers for Bauhaus, and I didn't ask for anybody's sympathy or anything. We shut down, paid the employees. I immediately was like, you're fired. Go get your unemployment. Yeah, I thought that was the best thing that you could do for your employees. Don't leave them hanging. Don't be like, maybe you could get, because they all wanted to keep working. And I was like, guys, I don't want you working in this. This like this is dangerous. This is a threat to your livelihood. And I was like, just collect the unemployment and stay home. You know? And and I advised the people that I did talk to, don't pay your rent. Like fuck it, don't pay your rent. What's your landlord gonna do? 
You know what I mean? Like cash is king right now. So I would highly recommend everybody don't pay rent. That's the best advice I can give you. I'm not paying my rent. That's pretty fucking good advice. It really is. Because I was just like, what are they going to do? Where are they going to get a new tenant? Yeah. The government owes us on this one. We pay taxes out of our ass for years. Like the government needs to come in and at the very least take care of people's rent for the last few months, you know, payroll taxes and things. They should probably give us a break on because tell me if I'm wrong, Dave, my calculation when I looked at this and I did the numbers, I think to open back up, if, if we have to do payroll again, you have to rehire, you have to retrain, bro, that's like a third of reopening a restaurant. Like, 100%. sure, there's no key money, but yo, your inventory, all that food that you had in there, this shit is a wrap. You know, we've been talking about, we've been talking about this a lot. It's, it's a giant expense reopening the restaurants, but you know, I, I, I'm, I'm at a point where I'm assuming that that's going to happen. Right. And I want to talk to people like you that are in Asia because Asia's got to lead the way for America in so many different ways right now. And whether people ever admit that or not, that's just what we're going to believe right now. And, you know, we are looking for answers and I want to arm people that are either diners or restaurant owners to be like, oh, I didn't see it this way. So what do you think we need to do? And I'm taking the magical leap of faith, assuming that we're going to be able to reopen up. The reality is this is going to affect disproportionately minorities, black, Latino, and poor restaurant owners and bodega owners more than anyone else. And they were struggling before this happened. So this has to be addressed. That's the people we should help. Those are the ones that I, like, I'm so glad you said it, Dave, because like, I don't want to like go for like Union Square Hospitality Group or nothing, but it's like, I'm not donating to that. You know what I mean? Like, you're going to be okay. You know, like it's the bodegas. It's the like, in many ways, the essential restaurants, the ones that have like held up the neighborhoods and, and, and those guys, because they're playing this global economic game, owning like Stop One Deli in New York, but they're not making that much. In Taiwan, so I'll, I'll explain this in Taiwan. Like I talked to like the woman making the Oden on the street or the stinky tofu. And I talked to all of them and they're like, yo, even business in the night market is really down because, you know, we, have, we always usually get tourists. You know, we get tourists from Japan, China, America. Usually the night market's packed. Night market's been super slow for six weeks. And they're like, we're not making the money we used to. But what we've done is just bring less food out. And they're like, we're open fewer hours. And it's just family that's working this. And you see a lot of the night market stalls now it's just one person there and they're coming out only between the hours of like 6 30 and like 11 o'clock and they used to be out there from like maybe seven or eight o'clock all the way till 3 a.m and everyone's just working those four hours now trying to like get that dinner rush and go home and because taiwan doesn't have like huge like most of these restaurants they don't have like huge payroll they don't have huge rent. They don't have huge inventory stores. They don't make as much money as an American restaurant on the top end, but when a pandemic comes, they're able to like kind of shrink it. And the cost of living here is lower. People make on like your middle class here makes like $23,000 a year. And that's like the upper end of the middle class. Um, Most people are really living on a couple hundred bucks a week. And so while money's not coming in, it they know how to stretch it out. Our bills in America are so insane. Like, I'll, I'll throw out my number. I'm not going to ask yours. I'll throw out my own number. Our gross at Bauhaus, you know, would be between 1.3, 1.6. 
the whole restaurant is only taking home 12% of that, maybe 10, you know, somewhere between 12, 10 and 12% of that. And like, you do all those numbers, you sell thousands and thousands, like, I mean, how many bows? I counted it up one year. I mean, we sell almost like probably like 350,000 bows a year. And it's like, you take home that much, you know, most of it's going to just the, the, the hard cost, the rent, the insurance, the taxes, the cost of doing business in America is like very prohibitive to even get in. And then to survive something like this is ridiculous. Yep. I mean, you, you probably had to open tons of restaurants just so that the like soldiers you had and the chefs you had, had their a spot to like get money. Do you want to like talk about that? Yeah. I mean, just because we're big doesn't mean that we still don't have the small business mentality. Um, and even, you know, every restaurant we've ever opened up has been different. We've never really stamped anything out. And I have, you know, um, we have a lot of employees and we did a fundraiser and we have one and, um, it's been a moral dilemma for us and we've talked about it at length, but the, the reality is, is we've been donating, we've been trying to help out as many different people as possible, particularly restaurants. But there was a growing group of employees that were like, what are you doing for us? And that was, yeah. that was the hardest thing for us. It's like, we knew we were going to get shit on. It was like, what about all these other small mom and pop restaurants? And I'm like, we just, when you have to make a decision under the gun, it was like, fuck, what do we do? How do we do this? And the more we waited on this, the more many of our employees like, what are you doing for us? And we were formulating a plan. And when we decided to do it, I was like, there's no way we're going to win on this. We're, if we don't do it, we're going to get shit on because we have 1,500 <laughs> employees. Our, yeah. payroll, our payroll every week, Eddie, is half a million dollars. <laughs> yeah. No, I know it. I know. Yo, it's tough, doing what, do, Raising half a million bucks, that's going to do almost nothing. It's like, oh, like... And I was just, it still like pisses me off because like, what do we do here? And, you know, I, I had a talk with a chef in Seattle and he's a great chef, Eric Rivera at Otto recently. And he's just like calling me out as he should. Cause he's just like, dude, if I had a 10th of your resources, I would have done this, this and this. I was like, dude, if I was one restaurant, I had 10 employees, I'd be doing the same thing. But the cost of doing business in New York is very different than anywhere else in America right now because of the density. Yeah, I, the I would also say in, in in your defense, man, and like I haven't come to your defense much in my life. <laughs> but <laughs> I would say in your defense, in your defense, in in this moment, man, I, I don't think anybody needs to be pointing fingers at each other. Like I shouted out Union Square Hospitality because they're a pretty bulletproof organization. Everybody loves them. It's a fantastic time. Your parents or older people come to the city. That's where you take them. You know, it's a professional experience. I've seen their fundraiser. I checked it out, but I was just like, I, I know there's going to be people that I didn't even think are in that much trouble after this, and they're going to need my cash. And I'm kind of like sitting on the little bit of cash I have for that. And you may not, and, and Dave, you know, I, I had a different perception of you a long time ago too. You may not remember this. I, when I first opened Bauhaus the first year, I was doing my own deliveries and you ordered Bauhaus. I delivered them to you to an apartment on Grand Street. Holy and that's, shit. I went back to restaurant. I was like, hey, yo, this guy, David Chang, like, I thought he was rich. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> it was like a tenement building. It was like the old Chinaman building on Grand Street. I went back. I was like, hey, yo, like, is that the, is that the end game? Like, like we work like 10 years and then that's where we live? Yeah. What the fuck? Well, that's the so I need yeah, a TV is... show. <laughs> People think that I'm way richer than I am. 
That, that is unquestionably yeah. the truth. <laughs> yeah. Same for me. I mean, I got kicked off of Fresh Off the Boat, so I don't really got paper like that. I love how Eddie's like, in, in Dave's defense, he's poor. Yeah. <laughs> but, bro, I, I remember I rode my bicycle to your crib, and, and I was like, yo, you live here? <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I'm doing much better right now, but it's like, I don't really have a ton of savings. Everything I put in was back into the restaurants. And, you know, I put myself in a really bad financial situation because like most Asian Americans, it was all loans and off the, you know, just rubbing two pennies together. And yeah. that's one of the reasons why, especially doing like other side businesses, like magazines and equipment, like I had to get investors because yeah. I was just given everything. We ran it literally as a socialist state. Our, our business for yeah. a long time because no one gets in this business to like truly make money. I mean, as stupid as that sounds. No, man, like it, you don't, you love it. And it's also most of us that ended up in the restaurant business. It wasn't our first choice. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, for some kids now that like grew up watching food television, it is their first choice. And then they're like, this was a terrible choice. <laughs> for me, like it, it wasn't a first choice. I grew up in a restaurant. I saw, I saw how hard my dad worked and I saw how lucky he had to get to get the run he had and then how quickly the rug was just pulled out from under him. And, you know, he had maybe like a seven-year run where he broke bread and the rest of it was just bleeding, you know? And th this is this is going to be a, a period of reckoning. And, you know, I, I think Momo's going to... Momofuku is going to be okay. When I... You know, in the moment, I was like, oh my God, this is... This is going to be the end. And well, I have days where I still feel that. But I'm like, if I feel this way... And there's a good chance that we'll, I, I'm not sure exactly how it plays out for us, but we're going to be better prepared than just about anyone else. And that just breaks my fucking heart when I think about all the independent restaurant operators that are like, wait, how do I do this? How do I do that? Oh, the government now tells me I need a HACCP plan in order to make food. That's going to be a $5,000 like consulting fee. How do I pay for that? Now I need to have a partition to do this. Where do I get the gloves and this and this and this? And I'm just like, it really puts me down this death spiral about what this business yeah. can be in America. Bro, like, you know, teachers got to be paid more and restaurant people got to be paid more, man. It's just, it's just fucked up. Like I know, I know chef owners of restaurants that basically take home 60 G's a year and they, they work seven days a week, you know, and maybe two of those days are like six hour days and the other days are 12 hour days. You know, like it's unconscionable. Um, that like, Income inequality in this country, it's just, it's just insane, man. Do you think that people will pay more for food in America? You know, I don't know if they will. I don't know. Let's, let's talk about this. this would be an interesting thing to talk about. Is I, my personal opinion is that in America with the economies of scale, because of the salaries of people at corporations, because of the money at banks and hedge funds and how much money they're making, we're all feeding their bottom line. And the cost of us doing business, yo, the processing, you know, I know you look at your P&Ls, the processing transactions every year. I'm like, I paid the credit card company to swipe, swipe. That's more than almost my, it's almost not more, but it's like 15% of your payroll almost, you know, 10% of your payroll, you know? And I'm like, that could have gone to employees. Like they have to do something about this credit card processing shit. Then the other thing, your bank fees, everything, insurance, right? And then when they when you do need your insurance, they don't want to pay shit. And then the taxes on these things, it's they need to lower the cost of doing business 
and then we can like pay our employees more. And, and I think that's what it is. You, you know, know I, I, I had this idea and I know it's going to get shit on. And listen, this is just a formulating of a plan. Cause I was talking to my buddy about it. Cause he was complaining that nurses and doctors, they shouldn't pay taxes. Right. They shouldn't pay taxes, especially right now. I was like, wow, that's a really good idea. What about like teachers and anyone that's an essential worker that does something that doesn't get paid that much? Cause if, if giant corporations don't have to pay taxes at all, like the, there's been loopholes. Uh, I was like, what if restaurant workers didn't have to pay taxes? That may be the only way to actually put more money in the restaurant, the restaurant industry. You know what I mean? Like at least federal taxes, you can pay your state taxes. You know, you know in 2015, like, or 2016, around that time, this is before, you know, Andrew Yang, UBI. I, I went online one day and I looked at like the hundred richest people and I took the amount of money that they, basically everyone on this Google list that had more than $500 million in their name, I went and I subtracted how much extra above $500 million they had. Then I divided it by the number of homeless people globally. And it came out to about $52,000, I believe was the number. And I was like, imagine if you just had a, like, you, me and you, we both love sports. The salary, no one argues with a salary cap in sports. It's better for competition. And then our entire global capitalism is built on the idea of competition. But then everything they do is to prevent competition, to prevent people coming for the throne. And it, it, capitalism can't work if you don't have actual competition. But I was like, yo, if you have a salary cap and people can't make more than $500 million and all the excess gets redistributed back to the people and the ground floor, the bottom level amount of money people can be poor is $52,000 a year, I think you have a much better society, you know? And poor people spend their money. They go right back in their pockets every year. This is like listening in on a conversation between Marx and Engels here. Just <laughs> Right in front of me. The yeah. Bauhaus Manifesto. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the pork bun manifesto, bro. We could run. <laughs> Before we go on, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. During this time of change, we want you to know that ZipRecruiter's focus hasn't changed. They're still doing what they've always done, helping people find work and helping businesses find the right people for their open roles. If you're looking for a job, ZipRecruiter is working with you to find the right job faster. They are dedicated to helping you get hired. From caretaking to delivering food and goods to building medical facilities, supplying protective equipment, and so much more. In fact, ZipRecruiter's app will send you up-to-date job openings so you can be one of the first to apply. And if you're actively hiring, ZipRecruiter will invite candidates to apply to your most urgent roles, making it faster and easier to reach the people you need. By connecting people who need jobs and companies that need people, ZipRecruiter is working with all of us so we can keep moving forward. Let's work together. ZipRecruiter.com slash work together. And now back to the show. Eddie, operationally in Taiwan right now, at the restaurants you were saying this weekend, you're going out, people are, are relieved and happy, but is it still, is it masks? Is it distance between people? Like what is, can you paint a picture for like, what it is yes. really on the ground? Like now that the things are reopened? Sure. And in the nicer restaurants, they have, uh, when you walk into like a mall or you walk into like a big plaza, they have like infrared technology 
So it's like a heat map and you walk in and, and over your head, it's like the temperature, your body temperature. <laughs> like it's predator. pretty interesting. Like the predator's watching you eat. Yeah, <laughs> yo, exactly. It's the fucking predator. And you look and you're like, oh, yo, homie's 38. Like, get him out of here. But like, <laughs> you can like see your temperature over your head. And then everybody's wearing masks. And then, um, what kind of masks? You know, uh, like these joints, um, not N95s, but just, you know, the cab driver, the Asian cab driver mask. And okay, then, but you say uh, that like, I know this, but most people don't know that. <laughs> yeah, no, most people don't wear these things, but like... But like Asian cabs always wear masks, always. Yeah, always. It's a courtesy, you know what I mean? And like everyone serving food at the night market wears it as a courtesy. Like you go to a hot bar, you go to Erwan, like, dude, motherfuckers is just breathing on shit. Luckily, Erwan's clean. They got the glass. But like most every other hot bar in America, it's just like, poo, 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 poo. you know, like, <laughs> but we go in and there's like hand sanitizer. They got the like alcohol spray. Everyone gets sprayed. And even though you walk through the infrared, each restaurant still takes your temperature. Now in the night market, there's no temperature taking, but everyone's gloved up and masked up and everything's like an arm's length exchange like that. And how different? How different is that then? I, I mean, I think a lot of this is we, we've talked about is Asia seemed prepared because they were, you know, scarred by SARS or they remember all this shit. Like, how how different? You know, has it, it become? ain't even. You know, Chris, I'm glad you pointed that out because I'm taking. I'm not explaining it to the American audience, but it's been like this for decades. Even I'd say even before SARS, we've just always had these masks. Everybody's worn them as a courtesy. It's not a weird thing over the years in Asia. I remember going and living in Korea in the mid-90s and people wearing masks. And I, I, I first was like, what the fuck is wrong with that? That's so weird. But I was the weird yeah. one thinking that was weird. <laughs> yeah. It, it was, yeah, people were just very, we're very careful. Like, we're very about healthcare, family, healthcare. These are things, like, we care about out here, you know? Again, and, Confucian values, family and longevity. Of life. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Yeah. Totally, man. But, but, totally. but go, go, going back to like just sitting at or even like a fast food restaurant, do they have the partition still up or are they blocking off tables still? Um, you know, they don't have the partitions. You know, you know, they're like, I think it's like Ikarin, Ica, Ica, you know, the, the Japanese ramen place where you go yeah. and it's like one individual. When I was quarantined, that was the one place I would go outside to eat because I'm like, you're in the cubby hole. But um, no, like they don't have the borders up, but people are very good about like sit six feet away things. We're all doing those things. Um, but it's at least in Taiwan, it's pretty it's pretty much business as usual. People are just care. we're more careful. We're still, you know, I didn't go to the club. Some of my friends went to the club this week and I was like, nah, I'm not trying to I'm not that excited. Uh, and, <laughs> and I do go to the gym. But, you know, when I go to the gym, I'm spraying everything, stay kind of away from people. But they have, like, alcohol and wipes everywhere. So everything. Is everyone with masks in the gym, too? Some people wear masks. I don't wear a mask, but you stand very far apart. Like, because you're breathing hard and shit like that. So you stand very, very far apart. It, it looks kind of funny. Like, people are, like, in the middle of the pathway of the gym doing, like, you know, their, like, shoulder raises and things <laughs> like that. Just, like, you know, in the middle of nowhere. Are movie theaters open up again? Uh, I think there are some open, uh, but not many people are going to the movie theater. Like, I know some people were waiting to go in, like, a couple weeks, um, but 
No, mainly smaller groups. But overall, the norm is not near, we're not even close to what normal Taipei is in terms of business. No, because, you know, it, this is a big tourist country. You know, we do a lot of tourist business, like food tourism is like one of the biggest things in this country. And so it's empty. You know, it, there's never been a better time to be in Taiwan. Like all the restaurants you usually have to wait forever, like the hot pot places. Like there's, there's hot pot places that are so popular. The original restaurant took over the, well, like you, like, you know, Momofu, you guys took over the next door because it got popular. Like even those hot pot places, no wait now. You could go into like any of the popular restaurants, any dumpling you want to eat, no line. Like absolutely <laughs> so no line. So this is a dumb question, but I mean, uh, hot pot restaurants, like family style dining is still just as ever, like everyone's sharing plates and how's, how's that working? Well, oh, so this is a great question, Chris. So this is the thing. We have a thing in China and Taiwan called gong kuai, which is community chopstick. So the gong kuai is what everybody uses. So no one's actual chopstick ever gets near the food. And we've always just had that tradition forever. And this is one of the things I get the most upset dining with Americans with is you will have a serving, <laughs> a giant coons like serving spoon on a plate and the motherfucker's in there with a fork. And I'm like, hey, 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 bro, spoon. And like, and I've pointed it out at group dinners before and people think I'm an asshole. I'm like, you know, now I could be like, catch that Corona. You know? <laughs> Use a serving spoon. But you, Dave, you've seen that before too, right? Like people just bypass a serving spoon. Like it's Monopoly Go. Listen, I'll be honest because uh, I can be such a fucking glutton. I'm that asshole sometimes. Just... <laughs> I, I, you I, in there, uh, Noodle Town with the yeah. chopsticks. <laughs> I would say, like, right, right before, right before Corona got crazy, we Chang and a friend of ours, uh, we went out to Chinese food, and he was so meticulous. Dave was crazy about washing every single thing, wiping every <laughs> utensil down, being like really crazy. Put he put on a glove to eat, and then like the food was really fucking good. And then I saw him definitely like the spirit took him, man. And he just started like, going fuck, for like, fuck it. Fuck it. He dropped his defenses <laughs> and just started eating straight. The salt and pepper place. squid came out. He's just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, my brother's so funny. He will get like an extra bowl at Chinese restaurants that are grimy sometimes, especially if they leave the chopsticks on the table. And, you know, sometimes you, you yeah, go in course. the chopstick thing and you're like, wait, these are wet chopsticks. These motherfuckers got wet chopsticks in here. He'll like take the napkin. He'll ask for a pot of tea and then pour the hot tea over the chopstick, then wipe it again, and then he's like, I'm ready. Yes, you know, yeah. but uh is is yeah, so the gong gong kuai is a big deal here to use yeah. the community chopstick. What else you been uh what have you been what have you been eating in Taiwan? Tell us give us like we can't do we can't eat anything here, so you gotta like we gotta live vicariously a little okay. bit. Okay. I mean, usually when I come out here, the first thing I do is hit my beef noodle soup spots. And so I, I will always go the tomato beef. I'm a big tomato beef noodle soup guy first. Then I'll get the hong sao, the like the, the traditional braised hong sao neuro man. Hold on, back up, back up, back up. Again, you got to break this down because most people have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So beef noodle soup comes in like multiple, multiple categories. And like everybody, it's like, it's like kung fu. People are like, are you mantis? Are you tiger? Like, what do you got? <laughs> and so tomato beef noodle soup is kind of like the boomer. It, let's say it's the boomer beef noodle soup, right? Like my parents' generation, very big on like the addition of tomato to a medium broth soup, right? The traditional, traditional one is hong sao, 
which is red cooked uh, beef noodle soup. And, and the style is very similar to like how we cook the pork belly at Bao House is also hong sao. And so um, Shanghai does like a sweeter hong sao. Hunan people do a spicier hong sao. Mao's favorite dish, hong sao, like a, a pork belly, um, similar technique, but you're basically sweet soy sauce braising. It's soy sauce braising with the addition of anise and chili peppers. And then um, very similar in Korean cuisine to say kalbi jim, right? I think kalbi jim yep. is derivative of, you know, hong sao. And then the third type of very popular uh, beef noodle soup is ch- uh, ching tang, the clear broth. And now this is almost exactly similar to kalbi tang. So yep. uh, clear kalbi tang. And, uh, you know, those would be the beef noodle soups. And those are the first thing I, I get my beef noodle soup. I get a good chip. We're very big on soup. I'm like, that's why my mom's from Sandong. And so I really like soup culture. And um, I, I go to a place, I get the, the pig foot and chicken soup. And they cook it down until it's like very, very thick viscosity. I'm very into that. Um, I ate Hainan chicken like a few times already. Uh, my favorite restaurant here is Fu Hang Doujang. And it's a Taiwanese breakfast. So I walked uh, five miles to this place one day. Like I, I, I just could not go to sleep. I was jet lagged and it was like 4 a.m. And they opened at about six. And I was like, well, I'll just, I'll just walk for two hours, eat it, take a cab back. So that was one of the best nights I had here. I just walked all well, the way. What, can you explain a, the Taiwanese breakfast and breakfast culture? to people that yeah. may not be familiar. Oh man, I want some soy milk so bad this, right now. This to me is the, the pride of Taiwan is our, our breakfast. And people are always confused. Like, is it dim sum? I'm like, nah, you, it's, you eat it at the same time you would eat dim sum and it's our, you know, counter to dim sum. But you go and the centerpiece of it is fresh soy milk, right? So you either a sweet soy milk person or a salty soy milk person or a peanut and soy milk person. Um, my dad likes salty. My mom likes sweet. I like peanut. So everybody orders your, your soy milk base. That's how it starts. Then you get a fried cruller. It's like a fried dough stick. Um, I, I'm also very big on turnip cake. So it's like a turnip pastry. Um, it would be similar to like the curry or tasu turnover that you get at like a Cantonese dim sum, but it's filled here with very, very thin radishes and a little bit of ham and scallion, salt, white pepper. Really nice. Like you you would oh. never think radish would be that delicious, but like the layers of radish and the texture are incredible. And then um, there's also, oh, with the rice bowl. My favorite thing is Taiwanese fan tuan. Sticky rice, dried pork sung, uh, spicy Which is like radish. Pork, pork floss. Yes, pork floss. Yeah. Yo, that was the bet. Like, if you had a mom that wasn't cooking or, or just AWOL, like, you could survive on a jar of pork floss. <laughs> it was amazing. It's the greatest thing ever. It's basically like very fine pork jerky that you put over your rice. And it sounds terrible, but it's like one of the greatest things I've ever eaten in my life. But you put the fried cruller, pork floss, uh, preserved radish, not pickled, it's like salty and preserved. And you roll that up. Some people add egg. That's like new wave. I'm very old school, like sticky rice, cruller, pork floss, radish. This place, Fu Hong, does it the best. 
And there's a real trick to the rice. And uh, it's like how you cook the rice makes a big difference with it. And um, what else? Danbing, like the egg pancake, scallion pancake. Um, those are like the real hits. You got the sesame pancake that they make in the fire pot, like the kind of like, uh, like uh, what, what is it? Tandoori. It almost looked like a tandoori that they make the sesame pancake in. And then you fill it with five spice beef sliced up. It's, this is just. Oh my God. But that's, a, that's, that's like a Taiwanese classic, though. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the best. Have you been to Taiwan? I have been three times. I have not been oh, in word. like 10 years, though. It's been a while. Oh, wow. What brought you yeah. out originally? I just wanted to eat. <laughs> nice. So you've had the Taiwanese breakfast and shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I best. was always thinking, like, how come that hasn't taken off more, right? Like, it's just, I don't know if it's a matter of time, but Taiwanese food in general, ha- like, you have, like, what's that one in L.A.? Paper crane? Pine, yeah, pine, pine and crane. crane. Yeah. I know. But you got... <laughs> Listen, sweet girls they're nice girls they're, you know? that's the thing it's a, it's a good business i'm happy for them but like in general their vegetables are really good but like how come here i'll give you a name you know where you know where people gotta go and and if y'all are ever in la this is probably my favorite restaurant in la huge tree pastry uh a taiwanese girl named lillian runs it with her family it's been in her family for generations that is where you go like anytime people is that are downtown? telling me about huh is that in Chinatown? It's, in a, it's in alhambra it's okay. in Alhambra. And it's only like 10 minutes from like Pine and Crane and Silver Lake. Look, girls, get your money. You know, they got joy on York. It does well. Fantastic. It's like, if you're not trying to go far, fine. Eat there. But like, you want a huge tree pastry. That's that's Taiwanese food. Where you know? where do you get Taiwanese food in New York? I, uh, besides the, like, I want to answer your first question. Then I'm going to answer this question. The reason why I think Taiwanese breakfast has not taken off is because number one, hindo gong, which we call like handwork, like it's actually really, really labor intensive. And they don't look at us like Dominique Ansel, like we can't charge you $5 for like, you know, uh, you know, a rice ball, something like that. You know, like maybe we can, but like no one's ready to like risk it for that right now. Soybean milk, so hard to make like on your own. Like we did it at Bauhaus for a long time. It took up like 20% of our kitchen downstairs just to make soybean milk. And then people are like, what is this? Oh, how do you drink this? And I'm like, with your mouth. <laughs> and, uh, but like, it's just, I can't wait. I, I hope somebody does it like really well on a huge tree level, but it's just about getting people to pay the money because it takes so much labor. Like you need a sheeter, you know, like to do it right. Um, if you come see even the breakfast places in Taiwan, it looks like some of the equipment they have at like Tartine Manufactory. Right. You know, like you need all those dough sheeters. You got to raise the shit. So I think that's that's the thing is it's actually very high level shit. Have the, you been to? Second, I, I haven't been to Winston Bakery. Have you been there yet? Yeah, I ha- I love those dudes. And like you know, so in terms of the rice, like those dudes are trying very hard, and I think they're doing a nice job, a good job. I, I love those guys. Uh, like even I went the first time they were making rice balls and I was like, I showed them how to make the rice because I was just like, this is an item from Taiwanese breakfast that you can do at a good food cost. And if just this one item picks up, it's worth it for everybody. So because my technique for the rice is first I toast the rice dry. I toast it. Then I set it aside. And then I will use a little bit of oil and then I will like kind of like uh, I will fry the oil up, then I'll go cook it. 
and then that that puts some spanks on the rice. It's like it's like Botox on your rice, and then it's like glossy. So it comes out, and that's how you get like the glossy rice ball. So they've been using that rice there. They've been doing well. Um, they also, you know, they don't have the technique for all of the classic Taiwanese dishes. So they're like filling in with, you know, American, like kind of like their take and twist on stuff. So I think Winsun is great, but it's not, it's not traditional. And it's not like the Taiwan experience. It's, it's a Brooklyn experience, right? Ching, it's, it's Brooklyn, it's Brooklyn Taiwanese food, which, which Ching, is cool. Had, and like, have you had a, have you had the, the, this, the font one that he's talking about, like the rice rolls with. Yeah, the, it's great. Yeah. Why don't, why don't, why do you, do you think American audiences get it? Like, why don't you think that dish, like that dish is my favorite fucking thing in the world. I'm looking at pictures right now. I think when you tree. say pork floss, cats are just like, Hey, what was pork floss? <laughs> yeah. No. But you know what? In, in, I, I'll say this time. Here's what I really believe. And Ying's heard this a thousand fucking times. If we know something is delicious and like objectively so, and it's not just a cultural thing, right? It's delicious. It, well, I'm not talking like fermented shark, which is like an acquired taste from like, you know, <laughs> I, I'm talking about like the baby rice, shark. rice and pork and like deliciousness and fried bread. Like these are combinations of ingredients that when put together are fantastic. Like pizza, for example. So I honestly think it's a matter of time before people can accept it. Yeah. And it's just going to well, take see, time. Well, see, I show here, I was selling rice balls and nobody wanted the shit. But this was 10 years ago. And I was also selling it with Four Loco. So that's probably like <laughs> affected affected the appeal of it. You know, like... It's not really meant to be drank with Four Loco and Hennessy, but like, yeah, I, I do think it's time. I just wish that some of these restaurants would do the, the do the traditional way first before they remixed it. Because I'm very big on like, all right, I'm down for the remix, but like the education, like you need the 101 course and then you get the 500 course. But uh, but you know who in can, New York, well, but you know who does it first, and I'm just <laughs> I wonder if this will get edited out, <laughs> but. <laughs> Oh God! The person that's going to do this is the is a, is a unfortunately someone that's not Taiwanese that's going to spend five to ten years living in Taiwan and loves everything about Taiwanese culture and is going to bring it back and make the most authentic thing possible. Yeah, because he that's can get an SBA loan. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> Lillian from Huge Tree ain't walking in getting an SBA loan. You know, like yeah, I hope a Taiwanese kid does it. Like I really do. Like I mean. <sighs> I mean, I I tried to do it. I I fuck I fucked up selling for loco. <laughs> I got bodied. But like you know, the the place though, if you want, and I I, I put it on. It was the first episode I ever did on Munchies Nanshang Shaolongbao and Flushing. They do the best Taiwanese breakfast in New York. They got all the hits over there. So you know, it 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 is there. It's there. It's not in Manhattan. And I just hope that like when someone does open in Manhattan, like Eater isn't like finally a Taiwanese breakfast. It's like it's been in Flushing for. Them. 30 years. One, you know? one more thing for just people that may not have been to Taipei, gone to the market, or just like, they don't even quite understand maybe Taiwanese history, but could you just sort of summarize what Taiwanese food is comparatively to the rest of China and sure. East Asia? Like, what are the distinguishing characteristics? So originally, oh, this, this is, it gets political. So originally, <laughs> uh, there is, I will say, the original migration of Taiwan, there's there's Aboriginals, but then there's Fukunese and and uh, migration to to Taiwan. So Fukunese, Fujian, it's like it's another like island to the southeast of China. Um, they mix with Aboriginal cuisine. They have a very very distinct cuisine. A lot of the like 
Chinese buffets and the Chinese hot bars that you see in America, this Fukunese food, and uh, and a lot of the original workers that came to America, Fukunese people, um, they have like island Chinese food. And then the aboriginals here in Taiwan, it's a lot of pork. And because they're poor, they use every part of the pork. They use a lot of seafood because it's an island, but they're very big on like, you know, we didn't have big ships and things like that. So a lot of bait fish, like baby, baby fish, dried anchovies is where we get a lot of our flavor and our umami, squid, things like that. You catch, you know, shrimp, shallow water type of stuff. Um, they built the original like island cuisine. Then it got mixed with Chinese cuisine. Then there was Dutch people that came and you don't see as much Dutch influence in the food. But one of the most interesting things is the furniture and design. Like if you go to the furniture district here, there is a lot of mid-century like Dutch furniture influence. Um, not that they had mid-century furniture back then, but like there's just like Dutch influences and you see the stuff. Then there was a Japanese occupation. All right, so Japanese occupied it. And so you see a ton of Japanese influence, especially I would say in the organizations of kitchens and dishes. Like um, you have Taiwanese people serving fish balls, just like, or, or hot pot type of things, just like a Japanese oden person would be set up just like a ramen setup that's very familiar. And so I think we got a lot of technique, a lot of precision. And uh, the most influential thing I think from Japanese food that you see in Chinese food is the use of hondashi and like bonito. We sneak bonito stock into so many things. And um, you see shaved bonito on top of things. Um, the use of like fish eggs and, and shrimp eggs and and things like that, um, it's really affected us. And uh, to backtrack, Hokkien, like there's also Hokkien migration. And with the original Aboriginal, Fukunese and Hokkien migration, you see a lot of like preserved bamboo flavors, preserved foods, like poor people have to preserve and smoke their foods. So everything has like a, a fermentation or a stink or a salt cured flavor. So that body's like in everything. And as your food develops, as your economy develops, you may be making like an elegant Chinese banquet dish, but on the side, there's like, you have preserved radishes or you have like flakes of something dried and fermented. And so all of these things together make an incredible, incredible cuisine. It's literally the melting pot of Asia. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and when you see the soups, like I think a, a, as a, a Korean person, like you can really relate to our soup culture because you start every meal with soup here. And one more question, because I'm I'm such a big fan of Taipei, and we really wanted to shoot a show there. Um, you know, the night market's been sort of, I wouldn't say bastardized, but there's been so many spinoffs of it. Not poorly done, but like, they try to sort of approximate what it might be like in America by making a night market. Yeah. Can yeah. you explain to people the insanity of Taipei night market? Yeah, man. And and I think that, thanks, man. Like, I, I really, like, appreciate you giving the time to Taiwanese culture, too, bro. Like, this is this is really dope. Like, it's, nothing makes me happier than to, like, represent this island in the food culture. So um, what's beautiful about Taiwan night markets is that it began as just your neighbors and friends. And, like, I really related to, like, the stories I would read about, like, the origination of hip hop in the Bronx, like people just 
rolling out their turntables, cutting the power cord in the street light, plugging it in and boop, boop, boop. Now we got a party. And that's literally what it is. A lot of the people in the night market, they live in the neighborhood. And I've actually like seen them in the morning getting ready, talked to them, followed them home. Not like creepy, but like walked with them home, seen them put their shit away. And most of the people live in little shacks and little alleys in the neighborhood. Their carts are chained to their houses or, you know, the the carts are, are chained up just like their bicycle or something. And they like wheel it out in the morning. A lot of the supplies are in their home. Some of the people even live on top of like where their stall is and they just walk downstairs and they start cooking. And um, they're all in their sandals. They're all in like V-neck t-shirts and like basketball shorts and a towel and a face mask. That's it. And uh, it's usually a man and his wife, a wife and a son or the kids running their parents' stall. Just two people, max three people, and they make like one dish. Uh, sometimes they'll have an expanded offering, like if they have a bigger stall and they, I got noodles, I got minced pork on rice, I got this, this, and that to complete a meal. But really, we're known for this one item. And you can walk through basically three avenues, like three New York avenues of like maybe three by five, three feet by five feet stall, and a person's just, wrecking shop, doing a thousand orders a night, you know, and, and it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And you could just walk down the Ave and eat a whole meal bit by bit by bit by bit. And there's not even like a competitive nature to it. It's like, oh, you want stinky tofu? Oh, the stinky tofu guy's over there. Oh, you want, you know, noodle soup? He's over here. Oh, you want chicken feet? He's over here. And like, everybody knows where they're at. And, um, you know, uh, I had, I was eating shaved ice the other night, like around 11 o'clock closing time, shaved ice. And a woman came with her son and she had just bought like some toilet paper, things like that from the store. And she went to the shaved ice guy. She's like, hey, are you okay? And he's like, yeah, you know, it's been tough recently. But it's okay. He's like, yeah, I noticed because like I've been coming out at night and you're not here. And he's like, yeah, I've been closing up shop early. And she's like, okay, okay, look, I'll, I'll buy two tonight. But he's, she was just like, if you have trouble, let me know. We'll get people to go. We'll try to come out, but just let us know your hours. And he's like, okay. And they're really like your local bread person or cheese person or whatever. But instead of like having a full building, it's just like a desk, you know, and you know, your guy or girl is going to be there and you just go see him twice a week, three times a week. And, and they're your neighborhood. And like, while tourists come visit, they're not like brands. These are just dudes. And that's my favorite thing is like they live with one person. My guy, my dad grew up on this one dad, dad, man, told me about it his whole life, tried to recreate it at home all the time. It was like one of the early chapters of Fresh Out the Boat. You could never recreate it. He took me to see this guy when I was 12. And this guy was just like, I've been feeding your dad since he was like this height. And my dad was like, this guy would be so busy. We would bring bowls from home and then he would serve it so that he didn't have to spend time washing dishes because like he couldn't keep up with the business. Like that's the way it is. Like it's a big deal in America to bring your bag to the grocery store. Like cats were bringing bowls and chopsticks to homie because it's in the neighborhood. And like, that's how familial it is. And that's what I love about Taiwan. It's like, I think in, in many ways positively because we are not part of the global economy. We are not really on the global stage. Our country takes care of its people, the individual, and it's very hand to hand still. And it's a beautiful thing. 
Well, that tradition of bringing your own bowls will probably be uh, spread around America here pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> Eddie, man, like that was the that was beautiful what you just said. Truly, that was that was thanks, a, man. That was a beautiful, beautiful thing, and 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 uh, I think Taiwan should be proud to have you represent all of their beautiful parts of their culture, both food and otherwise. Thanks, man. It, it means a lot. Before we get you out of here, can you give some details about the movie that you made? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, so that is a story about a Taiwanese-American kid growing up in Flushing, New York, and he's probably, like, top five high school basketball player in the city. Um, he, you know, he gets a lot of heat because he got a bad temper. I mean, he's a little bit unruly, and it's, you know, you don't usually see that from an Asian kid. So scouts give him a hard time. And um, it's really, to me like Asian Rocky meets like whiplash goodwill hunting. You know, if you, you, you replace math with basketball or jazz with basketball, it's, it's a, it's a coming of age. And it's very much about like the expectations of the society you live in, the expectations of this 5,000 year old culture you come from and that you interact with every day inside of a home and how you reconcile it when you step outside of your home. And then, you know, God rest his soul, pop smoke is the number one player in New York city and he becomes a challenge for this this kid Boogie, and uh, at the end of the day, it's a it's a, it's a love story, you know. Um, Taylor plays Taylor Page plays Eleanor, the love interest, and and um, there's one thing it's about, and I think you'd relate to it, Dave. I'd, I'd like I'd love to watch it with you and see what you think. Is it's about deciding how much of your past you carry with you, how much of your home country you absorb, and then how much of yourself is you and, and like how you walk into the world with that. And uh, that, that, that's really what the story is about. I can't wait to check it out, man. Thanks, dude. Thanks for having me on the show, man. And like, uh, I really enjoyed watching what you were cooking for your wife, Grace, when she was pregnant. That was like my favorite. That was my favorite David Chang era. You started cooking like real home school, home, home style shit. Oh man, shit, trust man. me, man. Dope. I'm cooking real home style shit now too. Don't worry about it. Uh, it was, it but, was dope. Uh, it was, it was awesome, man. It was really cool. Well, Eddie, you stay safe. And uh, when do you think we'll, we'll see you back in America? I, I mean, I would love to come back and like, july you know but i i wrote another script while i'm out here so i might be in taiwan for a little bit but i'll definitely pop back in the in the la and new york july august if, if it's possible i'd love to come home all right you know, take care stay safe guys thank you brother well that was a conversation with eddie wong pretty remarkable stuff that was uh, enlightening to say the least I think one of the things that I, I can't get over is the cultural differences between America and the Western world and how Asia perceives, um, I wouldn't say just cleanliness, but the idea that it's a courtesy to others to wear masks, to take your shoes off, to do all these things. And, you know, there's been a lot of conversation with peers and other, I'd say, government officials about what would be the best in class example for restaurants to follow. You know, we need to work our way backwards from most likely an improbable scenario because it would be just too difficult to execute in terms of safety. But if we didn't have to worry about cost and, you know, sort of the dream vision of safety protocol and work our way back there, 
they're sort of practicing that in Asia. In, and he described it. You know, some of the best places, they're taking your thermal reading, they're giving you a full alcohol body spray, and then you're, you know, getting your thermometer read again, and they're social distancing at the table and all of these things. And you're being greeted by someone effectively in a hazmat suit and a face shield. And, you know, I don't know because I haven't seen this yet, but I feel like talking to other Asian Americans with relatives or friends in Hong Kong and Taipei and such, they would almost all in agreement that if you were going to go out to dinner or get something to eat, that kind of extreme measures of safety would be seen as a total positive. And again, having run this scenario through some of my friends in America, that actually, that's the same scenario might scare people. I would love to know your thoughts. How safe do you want your restaurant to look like? And more specifically, I think a good question is, is diners should be asking, what are they doing to ensure the safety, the PPE, and the sort of the the well-being of the employees working at said restaurant as well. Um, these are all things that are going to have to change moving forward. Um, we got to start asking these questions and, and implementing change. We're going to try our best, but it's, uh, I think, on the diner now to ask these questions. What are we doing? What kind of masks? What are the safety protocols? All of these things. It's not just about what's on the menu anymore. It's who's making it. These are questions that should have been asked before COVID-19 anyway. But I'd love to know your thoughts as to how safe it needs to be for diners to feel comfortable eating out again. These are real serious questions that need to be answered. And uh, I think it's going to fall on the shoulders of chefs and restaurant owners to sort of figure it out because, you know, I understand why it's a difficult subject and and the state and local authorities and federal on a federal level just don't want to answer it. So if you... Email us at askdavidmajordomomedia.com or send us a DM. I'd love to hear your thoughts about what would be the right and appropriate amount of safety. And uh, that's something that is going to be consuming me moving forward. Stay tuned next week for our second podcast. Um, I'll be honest, it's a little late. It's 1242 a.m. I just got out of the hospital. Um... I had uh, kidney stones, and uh, it's been a pretty brutal day, I'll be honest with you. Uh, didn't think I could experience pain like that. And uh, thank you to all the doctors out there. It means a lot for everything you're doing and uh, taking the time out to see a knucklehead like me and uh, making sure that there wasn't something more serious going on. But um, I'm exhausted. I'm going to try to go to bed and uh, stay safe, everybody. Speak to you soon.